Hey guys, it's Jerry. And over the next several weeks on Thursday episodes, I will be reading my book, Hillbilly Horror Stories from Hell to High Water, from start to finish. This book has been out for a little over a year now, and I've been promising an audio version for some time, but just haven't made the time. I know that we have some visibly disabled listeners who struggle with physical books, and several that are not really book people like myself, or maybe can't afford the book at this time. I want to make sure that everyone has the ability to check it out, so I figured this would be the best way to do it. I'm not exactly sure how many chapters will be done in an episode. I'm just going to kind of go with the flow. But when we're completely done with the Thursday episodes, I'll put it all together as a true audio book that will be available for whoever may want it. I do want to warn people before we get too far in that this book is not suitable for all ages. There's definitely some strong language, talk of depression and suicide and some other adult topics. If you're expecting the same happy-go-lucky Jerry as you hear on the podcast, you're probably going to be sadly disappointed. This book was written in a very straightforward, serious kind of way. It deals with a lot of serious topics, so I felt that it would be best to treat it that way. Now, I'm not the best reader in the world. I'm going to do my best with doing this, and I'll do some serious editing to try to make it sound as good as possible when it is complete and put out as an audio book. But with that being said, buckle up, because here we go. Hillbilly Horror Stories From Hell to High Water Demons, Depression, and Redemption by Jerry Pauley. This book is dedicated to my mother, Ada Polly, and one of my very best friends, Kevin Tuttle. I will love and miss both of you as long as I have air left in my lungs. Acknowledgements. I have so many people that I need to thank for this book becoming a reality. First and foremost is my beautiful wife, Tracy. She's been my rock for the last 14 years. I honestly have no clue where I would be if I hadn't met her when I did. She is without a doubt my soulmate. I also want to thank my ex-wife, Cheryl, and my children, Austin, Amber, and Alex, for sticking by my side when I wasn't always a good husband and father. I'm happy that you have allowed me the opportunity to make it up to you. A huge thank you to author Leslie Fear, who encouraged me to write this book. I owe just as much gratitude to Diane Student. Diane has been a mentor since the very start of Hillbilly Horror Stories. She used her expertise as an author to not only edit this book, but also took the time to coach me on my writing skills. I consider myself lucky to have friends as good as these two. There would be no basis for this book without the Hillbilly Horror Stories Facebook group. It is a well-oiled machine that utilizes the help of several volunteers. I want Natasha, Tim, John, Cecilia, Tammy, Alberto, and Danielle to know that I can never give you the thanks and praise that you deserve for what you do for us on a daily basis. Tim Mullins not only helps moderate the group, 
but he also designed the book's cover art as well as updating the website and the HHS YouTube page. Thanks to all of you who offered your time to proofread the book and give me feedback and corrections. Jaina, Natasha, Laura, Sam, Amber, Kristen, Amanda, and Rachel, I owe you big time. This one's more podcast related, but a big thank you to a great friend, Michael Solzer, a.k.a. Tragic Times, for doing our theme song. And last but certainly not least, thanks to all of the listeners of Hillbilly Horror Stories for making our dreams come true. We love you all and will always consider you members of our family. And now the foreword by Lee Jacobs, a.k.a. Lebo Jakes, Vice President, Senior Investigator of Lexington Paranormal Research Society and History Alive. Who is this jabroni and why is he getting to write in Jerry's book? As an investigator of 20 plus years, especially one from Kentucky, who's promoting an upcoming television show, I knew one thing. I had to get a spot on Hillbilly Horror Stories to promote Lexington Paranormal Research Society and History Alive. Was my intentional introduction in pursuit of Jerry a shameless ploy for self-promotion? Without a doubt. Has it blossomed into a friendship and a deep respect between the two of us? Yes, and moving like a freight train. Of course, prior to my interview, I had to get my research in. I knew Jerry and Tracy didn't pull any punches, and the more I listened to the show, the more I began to admire HHS and their mission to help those in need, and less my appearance became about promoting myself. As an individual who's had to be a caregiver for friends and family members battling their inner demons, pun intended, Jerry and Tracy became more of a beacon than just two people who could help my paranormal TV career. They became friends, mentors, hell family. I digress. Let me get back to the timeline and why I think Jerry is a godsend for the paranormal unity community. So I go on the show, have a great interview. I think, cool, Job well done. Tons of new followers added to my social media accounts, appearances on other shows, and my name being considerably more well-known in the paranormal community. But it didn't stop there. Jerry and I continued to text, chat on the phone, and message one another. He was one of the first to congratulate me on the birth of my granddaughter, first to message if something tragic or amazing happens. In short, he's always there. Whether it be an inappropriate joke or a serious discussion about dealing with loved ones with mental illness, Jerry always responds or picks up the phone. This tells me that God made a decision for me. He took a brief snippet of my life that I was using in a very selfish way and used it to help me develop what will be a lifelong friendship and help me to add another voice to the HHS mission. Jerry has sent folks to me, my team, and some of our affiliates to discuss paranormal occurrences, awesome places to investigate, and a few folks that just needed an ear. I will be forever grateful for the brother and sister God gave me from my brief appearance on HHS, as well as the people we've been able to help. In closing, if you are opening this book expecting it to only be ghost stories and tales of the unknown, then you may want to put it back on the shelf and say, oh, I remember Jerry back when. If you're looking for a ride into the paranormal, as well as a journey into the mind of a person 
who has seen rock bottom and fought and clawed his way out? Then read this thing, take notes, and hit me up on social media so we can discuss. I love you, brother, and I hope that we are fighting evil together for a long, long time. Lee Jacobs Introduction When I set out on this dream to create a podcast in 2016, I never would have imagined the lifeline that it would become for people. I had hoped that Hillbilly Horror Stories podcast would get good ratings and have thousands of listeners, but what I hadn't planned on was having the opportunity to host live events and not only have them well attended, but have some people even travel internationally to attend and meet my wife, Tracy, and myself. The greatest surprise and most rewarding aspect over the last four years has been the number of people who have reached out to us to let us know how much the podcast has helped them cope. Some of these listeners were just going through a rough patch, a breakup, chronic illness, or losing their job, but others were battling mental illness. Several people suffering from depression would reach out to us on a weekly basis because they had no one else to turn to and they considered us family. Tracy and I love being a surrogate family to our listeners. Several listeners have related that they decided to seek professional help because our podcast inspired them to seek that help. More importantly, many have said that they are still here today because of our empathy and our compassion. These listeners were on the verge of suicide and something we said caused them to reconsider their decision to end their life. It has always been important to us to talk about depression at the beginning of each episode and to share the suicide hotline and even our own personal cell phone numbers. The decision to do this has brought positive results and even led us to turn our Facebook group into a support group for listeners who are struggling with a variety of issues. This group became a safe place to get the support they needed, particularly if they had nowhere else to turn. On more than one occasion, I've been approached about writing a book, but I wasn't really interested in compiling a bunch of topics that had already been covered on the podcast. Many of these same subjects have been covered exhaustively by others. Therefore, I respectfully declined these inquiries. After some introspection, I realized that I had a valuable story to share that incorporated two important aspects of my life, my love for the paranormal and my personal battle with mental health that led to a suicide attempt. There was more than just a love of strange topics, though. I had also experienced unexplained activity while living in a house that was haunted. Both aspects left me with some hills to climb, And today I am happy in ways that I could have never imagined 20 years ago as I worked to overcome. My familiarity with these struggles had helped me to offer others comfort in their suffering. Those people who needed a glimmer of hope. Those people who just needed a friend. I decided if I were going to write a book, it would be about my personal experiences and my mental health issues and how I conquered them. And most importantly... I wanted to share how those two things came together in a podcast that has helped so many on a daily basis. Many times in my life I've heard the adage, come hell or high water, and I never really gave it much credence. I never stopped to consider what that really meant. Over time, I learned exactly what it meant as I hit rock bottom and then scratched and clawed my way back to the top of my world. 
I love my life now. A beautiful and caring wife is not only my partner in life, but also my partner on the podcast. Every day I realize how lucky I am to have her by my side. On top of that, I have a loving family, great friends, and a dream career. My hope is that my story will be an inspiration to others. When I sat down to think of a title for the book, there could be no doubt it should be Hillbilly Horror Stories from Hell to High Water. As odd as it will sound for someone writing a book, I'm not an avid reader of books. One of the reasons that I do not read much is that I have a short attention span. I struggle to keep focus when writing has too many details. One could say that I get lost in the details. My writing style is very straightforward and matter of fact because that's the way that I speak. This may not be a style that you, the reader, appreciates, but I hope that you will endeavor to continue through to the end because I feel that I have an important message to share. Part 1. Paranormal Encounters Chapter 1. Moving into a Haunted House In April of 1981, my parents, James and Ada Polly, bought their first home after years of renting. Before that, they had raised my sisters and I in several homes that were close to the downtown area of Louisville, Kentucky. Throughout that time, my mother had dreamed of moving back to the hometown where she and my father had grown up and had met each other in the Fairdale area, which is a suburb of Louisville. She felt that this would be a safer environment for us. How could she ever have known that while the suburb might have been safer, the house that we were buying was going to be anything but safe? That April, I was 12 years old and getting ready to start high school. My sisters were younger, with Michelle being 11 and Becky was 9. And while we were excited to finally have a home to call our own, we were trepidatious about all the changes with having to start new schools and meet new friends. Fairdale was a bit of a culture shock, since all we had ever known was city living, and now we were going to be in a rural community. Now the term rural may be a bit of a stretch, but to us, our area seemed rural. You have to realize that previously we lived in a shotgun house with barely enough room to walk in between your house and the neighbor's house. For young kids, this was a lot to adjust to. But these were not the only big changes that were going to be in store for us. We were going to have to learn to live with even more that was out of our control because we soon discovered that we had moved into a haunted house. Before I share the experiences that convinced my family that our new home was haunted, I want to share some important background. My mother had a difficult childhood, and she grew close to her maternal grandparents, Troy and Ada Burnett. This was because her father had abandoned the family, and her mother had all but abandoned her, and the interactions that they did share were often tumultuous. Her grandparents took over much of the parenting, so when her beloved grandfather Troy lost his battle with cancer in February of 1982, her world came crashing down. This loss hit me hard as well, as I was his first great-grandchild and we shared a special bond. I remember holding his hand at the hospital the day that he passed away as he was struggling to breathe but still was able to tell me that he loved me. This was my first real experience with death and while I was bewildered, my mother was completely devastated. This threw her into a complete mental and physical breakdown. My siblings and I were raised Catholic and my mother had always been deeply religious. She attended church regularly and tried not to miss a major religious holiday. Her faith gave her comfort, and when depression consumed her after the passing of her grandfather, she started praying more and more and tuning into faith-based television channels. 
The night of our first paranormal experience was about two weeks after her grandfather's death. It was only 9 p.m., but my father had already gone to bed because he had to get up early the following morning for work. My sisters were in bed as well. My mother was sitting on the couch watching the 700 Club. This had become a nightly ritual since her grandfather's passing. On this program, they flash a call-in number on the screen for those who would like to call into a prayer line. I was sitting next to my mother in a plush chair, drawing in my sketchbook as I often did before bed. I glanced up as she dialed the phone to call the prayer line. The layout of this room had a sofa and a chair that we were occupying on one end and the console television on the other end, which was approximately 10 feet away. There was a sewing pin cushion in the shape and size of a doll's chair sitting on top of the television. This was fashioned from red velvet and was adorned with decorative lace. The seat of the chair lifted up so you could put your spools of thread inside. On top of the chair was a bottle of Elmer's glue and three metal house numbers that my dad had taken off of the house so that he could repaint them. Although I was young, I specifically remember this detail because of the terrifying experience that would happen involving these items and this would affect my life and my mother's life significantly. My mother had gotten through on the prayer line and she was praying with the person on the other end of the phone when the red chair that was weighed down by those metal house numbers rose up about two feet into the air and flew into the middle of the room, crashing down to the floor and scattering its contents everywhere. My mother and I locked eyes and silently asked each other, Did you just see that? My mother quickly told her prayer partner that she needed to go and we both picked up the mess from the floor. I remember trying to form a rational explanation for what we had just witnessed, but it was clear that we were both shaken to our cores. Somehow I managed to calm myself enough to retire to my bedroom around 10 p.m., but my mother stayed up because she was a night owl and enjoyed watching television until the early morning hours. That evening was a school night, so I was startled when my mother awakened me around midnight and asked if I would get up and sit with her in the living room. Clearly, she was still scared from the earlier experience that evening, and this was certainly understandable. But I was wrong about why my mother was full of fear. This was not due to the pincushion incident, but rather to a completely new, unexplained activity going on in our attic. My mother told me that she heard movement up in the attic, like heavy furniture being scooted across the floor. This shocked me, and I quickly reminded my mother that not only were there only beams with no flooring in the attic, but the only items up there were boxes that had Christmas decorations. There was no furniture up there. She begged me to stay up with her for a bit to see if the sounds would start up again. We waited around 15 minutes and nothing happened. So I told her I was going back to bed and that she probably was just hearing things because of the earlier incident had her on edge. The same scenario occurred on the following night. I was asleep in my bed. It was around 11.30 p.m. when I felt a tapping on my arm and heard my mother whisper in my ear, Are you awake? I glanced up at her and I could tell once again that she was afraid. She explained that she had once again heard the furniture dragging sounds emanating from the attic just like she had the previous night. Just as I had the night before, I agreed to sit up with her. This time, I would hear what my mother had heard. I had just sat down on the sofa when the sound of something heavy being scooted across a wooden floor echoed from the attic. This jaw-clenching sound seemed to last for an eternity, but probably only lasted for five minutes. The dragging sound was so loud that I expected the other family members in the house to be awakened, 
but they did not. My mother and I said extraordinarily little to each other as we held vigil in the living room for an hour after the sound ceased. I honestly felt that we were both so shocked that words escaped us. Though I was still rattled, I had to return to bed for I had school the next morning. My father was a hardcore skeptic when it came to unexplained circumstances. So when my mother and I revealed the strange events we had experienced the previous two nights, he obviously did not believe us. I seem to remember his actual response being, Bullshit! Which is not surprising coming from my father who was an ex-Marine construction worker. But even though he was a skeptic and a tough man who showed very little emotion, I remember him sending some mixed signals when it came to the paranormal. He would jump from informing me that he did not believe in ghosts to telling me that he had seen his grandmother in her old house shortly after she passed away. He left me quite confused as to what he was willing to believe, but there was no denying that strange occurrences were now taking place in our home. What started out as strange sounds soon became items missing and showing back up in strange places over the next couple of days. There was one time that a shoe went missing and we found it in a refrigerator. Other items that disappeared were sets of keys and a television remote. They usually reappeared where they normally were kept or in a spot that we had already searched. My most memorable experience of this was on a Saturday morning. There was a University of Kentucky versus Indiana University basketball game scheduled. I was excited for the game, so I remember that day distinctly. I was sitting at the kitchen table reading the newspaper and sipping a can of soda. When I reached out for the can to take another sip, it was gone. I had not moved. I certainly had not moved the soda, so I was baffled. I rose from the table and looked under it, and then I searched the entire kitchen counter area. I went into the living room and looked everywhere but found no can of soda. I finally gave up my search and went back to the kitchen to retrieve another soda from the refrigerator, and there, on the table, was my lost can of soda. The paranormal experiences seem rather mundane when looking back at them now. I wish that this were the whole of the haunting that we lived through, but that would not be the case. This haunting was going to take a very dark turn. Chapter 2. The Darker Turn If the haunting in our family home had remained just a few unsettling noises coming from the attic and some objects going missing and then returning, then that would be endurable. Unfortunately, that would not be the case for my family. A darker chapter would emerge when my mother's grandmother, Ada Burnett, passed away on July 1, 1982. This was only four months after the passing of her grandfather. Because she was still in a deep state of depression over the initial loss, this further loss would only compound that depression. The memory of the day that my great-grandmother passed away is seared in my mind. I remember the sense of urgency in my mother's voice as she packed us kids into the car after receiving the news on the phone. I remember how quickly the car drove to my grandmother's house. Only a few months earlier, I had my first experience with death, and so a part of me understood what was happening, even though my mother had shared no information with us. There was chaos when we arrived at the house. Paramedics had already moved the body, but I could not shake the feeling that my great-grandmother was still there. The sense of loss was still distant. We were met at the house by my mother's stepfather, Henry, 
I never really cared much for Henry. I'm sure he was probably a nice man, but he and my grandmother Elvie had recently married, so he and I had no connection. Elvie was my mom's mother. Unfortunately, I had no real connection with her either, since she had not really raised my mother. Elvie and Henry lived with my great-grandmother. The only positive memory I have of Henry happened on that day during all of the commotion. I overheard a conversation he was having with my mother as he explained what had happened. He was in the room when my great-grandmother passed away. They were in the kitchen and he watched as she collapsed from an apparent heart attack. Only he did not describe it like a sudden falling to the floor. This was much different. Henry said that she fell to the floor as though she were being cradled by invisible hands that lowered her softly to the floor. Could this have been my great-grandfather in spirit form? Had he returned to help my grandmother at the time of her death? They had been married for over 50 years. They were soulmates. She had been devastated by his death. The possibility of this was rather mind-blowing for my younger self. I had experienced some paranormal activity over the previous four months, but the thought of a family member returning as a ghost to guide another to heaven was hard to fathom. I remember discussing the possibility with my mother later that evening. The thought of that scenario seemed to bring her comfort. This was like a fairy tale ending to have her grandfather cross over from heaven to guide his one true love back to heaven with him. Unfortunately, the euphoria created by the fairy tale ended abruptly as my mother accelerated her downward spiral into depression now that she had lost the other half of her parental unit. The two most influential people in her life had died within four months of each other. She still had my father and the three of us, but that did not seem to help her emotionally at all. My 12-year-old mind interpreted my mother's behavior as not caring about us. I could not understand the depths to which she was sinking, nor her struggle to deal with these two losses. After I had experienced my own mental health issues later in life, I was able to look back on this time and empathize with what my mother must have been going through. I found myself feeling guilty for thinking that she didn't care about us. My mother changed significantly. Before the Depression, my mother had been a fun-loving and spontaneous woman. I remember her gathering us up for impromptu trips to Mammoth Cave, and she would sing her heart out in the car. My mother loved driving. I was only eight years old when she bought her first car, a red 1976 Monte Carlo with white leather seats. I can remember her pride in that car and how happy it made her. We would go everywhere in that car. The loss of her grandparents took that side of my mother away. But I've always chosen to remember my mother as the happy version. Part of me has always wondered if it was the loss of her grandparents that caused this shift, or if our haunted house had something to do with this change. The earliest sign of the depression was that my mother lost her desire to drive, so it was clear that there was something wrong. She would opt for my father to drive us around in her car, and then even allowed her beloved vehicle to be replaced by a 1978 Sky Blue Cutlass Supreme, a car that would eventually be my first car. The singing that we were so accustomed to hearing in the car faded away. Most days, my mother was not happy. Many times she would curl up and sleep on the couch all day as the rest of the family carried on their lives around her. The hardest part to deal with through all of this was the relationship I shared with my mother. 
I was the eldest, and clearly we had a special bond. But as I entered my teen years, our relationship became very strained. This is difficult for me to talk about. I wanted to believe that this was just normal difficulties that all teens and parents go through. But the strained relationship continued into my adulthood. When I look back and analyze the unraveling bond, I understand that perhaps I did not show my mother the compassion that she needed back then. This left me with much guilt that I only began to deal with after her death in 2005. I will talk a little bit more about this later. To understand why I did not see my mother's actions as clinical depression, one must consider that in 1982, most of the world did not acknowledge depression as a medical condition. Doctors would tell their patients to quit being sad all the time and get up off the couch and go do something fun. Society handled depression the exact same way, and this continued into my adulthood when I dealt with depression. Even today, there are parts of the community who still misunderstand depression. And this is with medical advances that prove that depression is often a condition that needs professional help and sometimes medication to treat. On top of my mother's struggle with mental health, she was also struggling with other medical conditions. This is another area that's hard for me to discuss, and I want to be as respectful of my mother as possible. Shortly after my great-grandparents' death, my mother was diagnosed with esophagitis. That's a disease that affects the esophagus. Stomach acid comes up through the esophagus, making it raw and swollen, and this makes it very difficult to eat solid foods. There are different extremes to esophagitis. Some people manage the pain better and can eat with minimal struggle. For others, the pain is more intense and the struggle is much harder. For my mother, her case was extreme, and the doctor prescribed that she eat only baby food. So my mother literally ate baby food right out of a jar for several months. My mother also started suffering from migraines. And then there would be another medical condition that would plague her, and then another. Every other week, it seemed to bring on some new ailment. My mother was not a sickly person. Up to this point, she had always been extremely healthy, rarely getting sick or needing to visit a doctor. Her most serious medical issue had been an appendectomy when she was just seven years old. So when all these medical conditions started afflicting her, it was completely out of the norm. Our family doctor diagnosed my mother with some real medical conditions, but on a few, he postulated that perhaps she was making herself sick. He suggested to my mother that it was possible that because of her grief, her mind was manifesting some of these issues. This angered my mother greatly, and she stopped visiting that doctor. But the doctor was not the only one who thought this way. Most of our family secretly suspected this as well. My mother was now dealing with several illnesses and depression, and then the paranormal activity in the house increased. We all had paranormal experiences, except my father, but most of the activity was focused on my mother and myself. I started hearing voices coming from the heating and air conditioning ductwork that was in my bedroom in the early morning hours or late at night. These seemed to be three distinct voices. One was female, the other two were male. The voices were little more than whispers, so I was unable to make out the words that were being spoken. This was a little inconvenient since my super single waterbed with its dark pine bookshelf headboard was pushed up against the wall on one side and now the stereo was on the other side. I had to crawl into bed from the bottom, 
but I needed that stereo there so I could just turn over and turn it on and drown out the ghostly whispers whenever they started. The added light from the stereo's display also brought me some comfort. The Hillbilly Horror Stories podcast has given Tracy and I the opportunity to visit some of the most haunted places in the United States, and we've had some strange experiences. We visited Waverly Hills Sanatorium and Bobby Mackey's Music World multiple times. Both places show up on almost every top 20 list of the most haunted places in the United States. We've overnighted at the infamous Sally House in Kansas. The Sally House and Bobby Mackey's Music World have manifested what some call demonic activity. But nothing we experience comes close to the encounter that I had in my house September of 1982. This was the scariest experience of my entire life. I was lying in the bed wide awake around 6 a.m. I was brimming with excitement. This was a special day. I was a freshman at St. Xavier High School, and tonight was the St. X Trinity football game. This was, and still is, one of the biggest rivalries, not just in Kentucky, but in the entire country. So there I was, thinking about the upcoming game, when I heard a single tap on my window. The head of my bed was right next to the window, so there was no mistaking the tap, but I chose to ignore the sound. A few seconds later, there was another tap. This was followed by another one. Now I was starting to feel afraid. I rolled over and turned on the stereo, which was broadcasting my favorite morning show. This was the kind of show with lots of hijinks, so I quickly forgot about the tapping and my fear melted away until the tapping started again. This time it was louder and there was less time between the taps. I tried to tell myself that the storm was kicking up outside, although I really did not want that to be the case as it might ruin my plans for the football game that evening. My thoughts were interrupted by a strange and terrifying noise. This sound is hard to describe, but it mimicked the sound of a cow in distress a sort of sick-sounding bellow. A sound such as, This joined the tapping, so it was like tap-tap-moo sound. The tapping increased in frequency, and the animal sound quickened its pace and took on a more demonic nature. It came faster and faster so that the bellowing sound had the cadence of a dog panting. My heartbeat increased as the sounds got louder. And then, BAM! Something slammed into my window right behind my head. Within seconds, I jumped out of my bed and ran into the living room and huddled into my dad's recliner. I was shaking and hyperventilating. The paranormal experiences in our haunted house had been more annoying and strange than anything, but they had never seemed evil. This was next level. The house was still dark in those early morning hours and I anxiously wished for the daylight to come. The football game was completely forgotten. When the sun finally lit the sky, I went outside to the area around my window to see if anything was there that that could have possibly made this sound. I found nothing unusual. Certainly nothing that would have made a strange animal sound. To this day, I still have no idea what made that sound and what slammed into my window. A few months later, my sisters and I were in a room in the back of the house that we had made into our TV room. 
We were playing Space Invaders on our Atari 2600. We only had two controllers, and there were three of us, so we were arguing. One of us noticed a shadow on the wall above the television. We all agreed that it resembled the shape of a stereotypical devil's head. The horns, the pointy chin, the one pointy ear. We all stood up and started surveying the room to see if we could find what could have thrown that kind of shadow on the wall. The room was dark because it was nighttime, so we figured that the light from behind the television was throwing the shadow. This was not the source. Then we noticed that the shadow had changed and went from what appeared to be a profile to a front-facing image that now had two horns, two ears, and one pointy chin. This terrified us. We all three got up and tried to run through a door that was only big enough for one of us to squeeze through. There was a small area rug on the other side of the door, and as we ran through, my sister Michelle slipped on that rug and fell to the floor. My other sister and I helped her up, then we ran to the living room where our parents were sitting. We told them what had happened, and our mother believed us, but of course our skeptical father just rolled his eyes. My siblings and I had become familiar with these different reactions from our parents. We would learn to adapt to more than that in our family home. We would gain an understanding of life with a ghost. That concludes this week's part of the book. We got up through chapter two. We'll start off next week with chapter three. If for some reason that uh, you've heard this and now you would like an actual copy of the book, you can get a signed copy from our website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com. And I'll uh, sign it and uh, personalize it for you. Or you can get it straight from Amazon if you want to go that route. And uh, Amazon.com. And anybody who hears the book, if you want to leave a review, even though you don't have the physical book, you want to leave a review on Amazon, it'll definitely help us. But uh, thank you so much. We'll be back next week. We'll start off on Chapter 3.